What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Quarterly Report Podcast, episode 147. Thank you so much for rocking with me for another week. Of course, I am your host, Armand Lee, and what a show we have lined up in store for you this week. Of course, last week we had some technical issues, but Keely Divin, I promise you, Keely Divin from ESPN will, in fact, join me this week. We have so much to discuss Obviously, the finale of The Last Dance. And who stands more to gain if the NBA season does have a conclusion? We're going to break all those topics down and some much more. Plus, it's been rough these last five weeks watching Michael Jordan over and over again. As a Knicks fan, particularly a Knicks fan in the 90s, as we're living a lot of really, really problematic, traumatic experiences from a, a sports perspective. But I've had one lasting revelation, one lasting kind of point that has come through all of this that has come along with The Last Dance. And it is my feelings, my opinion on Patrick Ewing. That in the fourth quarter, I promise you, you won't want to miss that. All of that and so much more. But first, let's get right to it. Our first topic this first quarter. Back on my bullshit. Hey. Back to back on my bullshit. Matter of fact, I was bullshit. I'm going back to back to back on my bullshit. Do it one time, they gon' think it's luck. Gotta hit him with the repeat. Do it two times, they gon' still doubt. Hey, now I got a three-peat. That's the hardest intro ever. As someone who hated, I'm talking about hated. The 1990 Chicago Bulls, bro. There's something about this intro that kind of puts it all together, man. Because no matter how much you could hate, there's nothing you could do but to respect. You feel me? And now that we've gone through the entire 10 episode arc of The Last Dance, I don't. I know it's being billed as a documentary. It's, in my opinion, more like a, a first person type of retelling. <laughs> um. I think we have the ability to kind of sit back, ingest, digest this entire piece of work, give it the the, the right amount of praise for the production quality. And that's something that I definitely want to spend some time on uh, for this quarter, but probably throughout the show. Uh, give these that entire crew their flowers because it was a phenomenal uh, piece of art. Like the product, the producing of this um, retelling of the, in many instances, the greatest professional. I don't know, and the retelling of this iconic period of time. Something that, when you just look at, not even the doc or whatever you want to call it, but just the reaction to it. The excitement before before any of this COVID-19 happened, because I do believe that this documentary or this piece of uh, storytelling, if you will, being released during the pandemic, it has heightened our excitement for it because this is it. This is the almost the only thing that's new that is being <laughs> delivered at this high of a level. However, before there was ever any word of coronavirus, before 
self-quarantining was uh, social distancing was even in the uh, vernacular of society, specifically American society. We were all excited for this 10 part series, if you will. So I don't want to just give um, the credit for the the monstrous numbers, the the phenomenal um, the, the phenomenal response to it, just because we're all shut down. No, there was excitement, there was um, anticipation for this before, while everybody was still outside, and that speaks to how great of a team, how significant of a place in our our culture that that organization has, but more important than any of that, how iconic Michael Jordan is. And again, I am saying this as someone who never saying I wanted to be like Mike because I never wanted to be like Mike. You understand what I'm saying? I, I didn't buy his shoes until I was in, well in high school because that's how deep, <laughs> that's how deep it was for me, bro. I just never really rocked with him like that, bro. I never rocked with him. Um, while always appreciating how great of a basketball player he was. So I want to make sure I set the tone off the correct way. Michael Jordan, in my opinion, and I've said this time and time again on this show, and I'll probably say it for, for longer. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player that I have seen. I believe Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever. That's what I believe. And I've seen, like before the finale, but like throughout these last month plus you know, there's been so many people like, oh, if you can watch this, I don't know how you feel he's not the greatest basketball player of all time. I've seen David Falk. I've seen Mike Greenberg. I've seen former players, you know, the, the entire, you know, sports gamut of sports talk shows. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Like the same people, not even the same people, new people even. People who may not have been alive to remember or even alive to see these legendary moments that we all kind of got to like relive as a, as a community. But I will say this, or I will ask this, and this is again, coming from someone who believes Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever. What happened in these 10 part series that was able to submit that for you? If you feel that Michael Jordan is the best and I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just asking, I'm curious. If you feel that Michael Jordan is the best, what did you see in the last dance that make you feel that or make you feel even stronger in those beliefs? Because I have to say, I don't know what it was. Despite the fact that it was well done, despite the fact, and this is important, that it was rushed. This series was not supposed to air until June during the scheduled NBA finals. Now, obviously things happen, circumstances change, and we understand why it was rushed. And despite the fact that it was rushed, it was still put together phenomenally well. I'm not taking anything away from the production of it. But when Ken Burns says, yo, this is not a documentary, this is not journalism, he's 100% right. This is propaganda. And like, I'm hoping that if we're going to have a conversation and we're going to use this. In fact, I wouldn't ever even contemplate using The Last Dance as any type of reference or any type of source to, to, to use in terms of arguing why Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player or even why he isn't, if you believe that way. 
so many people are reciting The Last Dance as a reference. I'm just curious, what did you see from this to make you feel that Michael Jordan is better than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Because that's that to me is the 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 number one, the first question I ever have anytime I see, and I've seen it so much. I've seen it on the timeline. I've seen it on television. I've I've heard it when I talk to my friends, and, and many of them, not all of them, because you know, I have a lot of friends who kind of also deal in journalism, right? And, and you know, when you, when you go on a certain path, a lot of your friends. Uh, from school or even your colleagues, your co-workers, they become close friends. So you have certain uh, sensibilities. So when I watched this, specifically the end of episode seven, I wanted to say, I was like, okay, this entire documentary or whatever you want to call it, it is, it has dived in. It, it stuck its foot in the propaganda. But I never felt it the way I did after watching the end of episode seven. And again, phenomenally well, like done incredibly well right really really done well and in terms of entertainment oh my god like it's it's i mean from the score to the edits to the to the access you understand like dog a1 no no knock on it but the substance man the perspective the point of view Slim, we heard from Ahmad Rashad more than we heard from Dennis Rodman. You feel me? Ahmad Rashad, dog, Ahmad Rashad, obviously great career in Oregon, phenomenal wide receiver for the Vikings, but then had a complete rebirth. I shouldn't say rebirth, but, you know, had maybe even a greater run when he was just strictly for NBC Sports. Did football, did basketball. And we all know about Inside Stuff, an iconic series. Man, I used to love watching Inside Stuff as a young boy in the 90s, right? He was a part of NBC's coverage. He was doing sideline. He would do studio stuff. He was a journalist, or maybe not a journalist, but he was a part of covering the NBA. You see how close he was to Michael Jordan. I'm just thinking about conflict of interest. He was in this series so much. And I've asked several times on my on my social media pages, like, yo, why is Ahmad Rashad in this doc so much? And I, I was doing it tongue-in-cheek. But so many people would actually give me responses as if that was like a serious question. Like, yo, he and Ahmad are boys. They friends. You know, Mike was uh, a co-producer or whatever on this series, right? And I got that. I, but the point was... Ahmad Rashad should not have been that focal of a voice during this. And if he was because of his position covering the league, we then have to question, yo, why are you so close to MJ? And that's my entire, it's a roundabout way to get to my larger point. I give Michael Jordan the most credit. I mean, look, man, as a Knicks fan, he tortured me regularly. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the fourth quarter. Uh, the name of this episode is called Ewing Theory. And I, you can probably guess kind of where we're going to go with that. But as someone who did not like Michael Jordan, anytime I talk about him, even when I'm talking about The Last Dance, which somehow was just about him, <laughs> right? I was thinking that, yo, The Last Dance, the last season, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, to, tell, to properly tell the story, you're going to have to look back a little bit. 
I'm thinking when I'm coming into this, and maybe this is my own me being naive. I can and I can wear that, you know. I probably should have known better, but I thought that the majority of this ten-part series was going to be on the last season. You know, they. I mean, Dennis Rodman again. It was Dennis Rodman went to a WCW pay-per-view during the middle of an NBA Finals. They spent like fifty. Ten minutes on that. I thought you could have made an entire episode on that. Like that's un that's unheard of. That's unheard of. You know. But like, regardless, I foolishly thought that this was going to be on the Bulls. Obviously, when you have Michael Jordan, you know that it's going to be focused primarily on him. But still, you know, the Bulls would be the central theme. No, it wasn't. They were. I don't even know if you could say they were co-stars. They were just passengers on this, right? And again, my, my larger point, as someone who did not like Michael Jordan, as someone who regularly rooted for him, for someone who was not a fan of him or the Bulls, anytime I make my opinion or I voice my opinion on the matter, I think it's important that I give you full disclosure and showcase my bias. Despite the fact that I think Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, I do have a bias. I'm not a fan, right? I, I, I not, not just that I wasn't a fan. I rooted against him. I'm not a. I don't like him as a. I just didn't like Michael Jordan a player. So you can understand why yo, people can listen to me and be like, okay, well you know what, well he didn't he didn't like Michael Jordan. Not only did he not like Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan eliminated his favorite team regularly, right? So. You can then decide whether you want to listen to my voice, put a grain of salt, or maybe an entire container of salt in what I'm saying. And that's perfectly fair. My question then becomes, why is it that the people who didn't dislike Michael Jordan, why is it that the people who idolized Michael Jordan, the people who spent uh, their childhood singing that they wanted to be like him, the people who, you could say, worshipped Michael Jordan, right? You never hear them say, okay, well, here's my bias. I'm a huge fan. I very rarely hear anybody who sang the Gatorade theme song say, you know what? I was a huge fan of Michael Jordan. So, you know what? Take that with a grain of salt. I think he's the greatest basketball player of all time. I never, I don't really hear people say, man, you know what? I love Jordan. I've spent over thousands of dollars on his paraphernalia, on his shoes and sneakers and whatever, and have posters on them, and I, I love Michael Jordan. So, because of that, you probably should take a grain of salt with my opinion. Or how about this? The people who benefited financially from Michael Jordan, whether we're talking about David Falk, whether we're talking about any, most members of the media, Ahmad Rashad included, but not just him. Michael Jordan, it, it's... I hate doing the thing, man, it's hard to, un to explain it if you didn't live it during the time. I hate sounding like the old Bama, you understand? Because I hate when Bama's do that to me. But listen, the, the NBA is not is it anywhere close to its popularity. Now, forget the popularity, man. It's positioned as a dominant entity without Michael Jordan. The, the celebrity analyst... Right, the twenty, the 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 boom of all these twenty four seven sports networks and interline, internet and all these you know famous columnists and like oh they they all they all owe some 
whether a lot or a little, there's some spectrum where they all owe Michael Jordan because the boom of the celebrity sports analyst comes from Mike. Now, obviously, there were still the Howard Cosells before and, you know, in other sports as well. But I'm talking about the Pete Vesey's. Like, there was a, a, a huge boom in the 90s. And that's directly, in my opinion, that is directly an effect, a benefit because of Michael Jordan's popularity and his dominance. So all of these people who know, right? I mean, I've had to take countless numbers of conflict of interest training. So I know all these other people have and more than me. Why is it that no one who who benefited financially, who were friends with him, who who sang the songs, who loved or, or adored him, how is it that their opinions don't need to come with the you know the disclaimer? You understand? When Isaiah Thomas says, "Man, I don't know if Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time," the initial response is, "Oh well, that's Isaiah. He doesn't like Mike." Okay, that's cool. That's fine. But when Scottie Pippen gets on the jump and he's like, oh, man, Mike is the greatest basketball player of all time. No one then was like, hey, well, you know, Scottie won a lot of rings. He was his teammate. They they have some type of relationship. They're friendly. When Bill Lambeer is like, oh, man, I think LeBron is better than Michael Jordan. And again, I do not agree. I think Michael Jordan is better. I think Michael Jordan is better than LeBron. I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is better than LeBron. But... When Lambeer says that, the initial response, I mean, almost like a reflex, is, oh, well, he doesn't like Michael Jordan. But when everybody else or when others who are friendly with MJ, they never have to say that. They never have to be like, well, you know, I am friendly with Michael Jordan, so my opinion could be biased because bias works both ways. And when you watch The Last Dance, my slim, we can't act like there's not a bias, like, and then bias isn't even the right term. It's completely through the lens of Mike. You so obviously there's this is almost a first person telling of a story. This is when so when people start saying this documentary, and I know what's going to happen, people are going to use this as a source. Generations for for younger generations who never watched Mike play, who do not know, who can. Only know, we can only know by what they have read and what they have seen. We are propping this because of the entertainment value. We are propping this up as if this should be gospel. Like this should be the, the written history of basketball. And, and, and while there is nothing, um, there is no uh, lies, right? There are no untruths. Uh, it's still, it's a bit nasty, bro, because, like, I put it to you like this, the NBA did not begin in 1991, and over the years, we have been told, hey, Mike had to learn how to win, that's a real cute way of saying, dog, Mike lost, you feel me, like, that is also part of what happened, too. And I'm not saying this documentary didn't say that he lost. They definitely showed him losing. And they, you know, that's that did happen. But they're just little interesting ways of how something is spun. Oh, he had to learn how to win as opposed to saying, you know what, he lost. Man, 
we, we vilified Jerry Krause, which is super nasty because the brother is not even here to defend himself. But look at the organizations of that time. The Chicago Bulls were run better than all of them. They didn't really properly, in my opinion, give the necessary credit to Tony Kukoc. He, he had like a 20-minute run. They, they, they probably devoted about 20 minutes total to Tony Kukoc. And whatever, that's fine. But using the European um, pool, talent pool, the way they did, the 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 stretch four, Tony Kukoc is 6'10", could bring the ball up, a phenomenal passer, phenomenal shooter. That's what almost every NBA team looks for now. You understand, 22 years later, 23, 24 years later, they were ahead of the curve. They traded Will Purdue for Dennis Rodman. While so many teams at that point still thought, hey, man, you know what? We need to just isolate, isolate, give the ball to our best player and isolate. Phil was on some let's move the ball, ball movement, space. You understand? Specialists. They didn't just have the one shooter. They had Kerr, Bushler, Kukoc. Before that, it was BJR. You understand what I'm saying? Like this team was, they, they were built correctly. And in an era where front office weren't, front offices, excuse me, were not that smart, the Bulls had the upper hand. And then, of course, they had the best player ever. So I, I don't want to take away from that. Mike did. I mean, he was the biggest reason why they won, but he was not the only reason. And we have to look carefully at how this story is told, bro. 95, they kind of brushed over that. Look. If we are going to celebrate Michael Jordan's 55-point game versus the Knicks or his buzzer beater versus the Hawks, like we then can't say, eh, well, 95 shouldn't count. Huh? In the playoffs. Like, all of the positive things that happened in 95, yes, we will use them to celebrate Michael Jordan. But the negative, nah, that ain't it. We're not going to talk about that. He wasn't ready. That doesn't make any sense. Imagine if you're, imagine if you will, you out with your lady, like a, like a couple's dinner, whatever. And someone is talking about, oh man, yo, Armand, you're a phenomenal husband. Oh my God, look how great you are. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember that time in whatever year when you did this phenomenal surprise for your wife and you took her to this vacation. It was all these beautiful things. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. That joint was dope. Oh, my God. I keep talking about it. And I'm like reveling in the praise. But then my wife looks at me and she's like, hold on. That's the same year where you cheated on me about two, three months later. And I go, I'm like, yo, yo, yo. I was, I was depressed. I had just lost my job. COVID-19 was going on, man. I was, I was sad, man. That don't count. But go back to talk about all the beautiful things I did before I cheated on you. Nah, that shit don't work that way. You feel me? Like, if you are going to celebrate the great things that Mike did in 95, which I think we should, we then can't be like, yeah, but you know what? He lost in 95, but that doesn't count. You see what I'm saying? The, the logic does not connect. And it's because so many of us, particularly in the media, we're going to talk about the media and the power that the media has in the second quarter. But so many of us bought in to the mic worship, the idolizing. 
We were ready to say that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player of all time when he won three. Now, you can't be even in the discussion of greatest basketball players of all time unless you have five. That doesn't make sense. Again, I have my biases. I do. And I'm not afraid to, to open it up. But why is it the people who also have a bias when it comes to Michael Jordan, but a positive one? Why is it that we never question them? Because that's what the best stocks do. Whatever it is you think you know, we're going to question it. We're going to question everything. We're going to show you all angles, all sides, and we will leave you to be the judge with no influence, right? No propaganda. No flowers and bunnies and all. You know, we're just going to give you the hard truths. This won't that. And though it was a phenomenal piece of producing, oh my God, it was so much fun. Man, it brought many of us together. I don't know if there's another person who could have done what Jordan did. Just one person, okay? Not a group, not a not a thing, not, not money, right? But just a person. During a pandemic where so many people sit down together and watch and be entertained, and that's a power that not many people have. And I don't know how many people have it or will ever have it moving forward. But man, like to, to, to act as if the last dance is the last word, if you will, on Michael Jordan's legacy, that shit just don't sit right with me. But I want to hear from you. Let me know what you guys think. Are you, how, how would you rate the last dance? And do you feel that the last dance did a fair job in covering Michael Jordan? And actually, let me ask you one more question. What did the last dance tell you? that made you feel stronger or made you feel almost cemented that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time? I know a lot of questions I'm sending your way, but just send me whatever you want to hear, whatever your thoughts, whatever your feelings are on the last dance. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet at the show, quarterly show. That's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. All right, cool. Now, enough with Michael Jordan. Yeah, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm sigh, taking a deep sigh of relief. I don't have to talk about MJ anymore. But I do want to talk about the power of influence, particularly from the media. It's our second topic this week. Second Last quarter. week, I had a, what I thought to be a relatively benign tweet. That was uh, Jason Tatum uh, was on the All the Smoke podcast, I believe. And he was talking about Bradley Bill. Now, Jason Tatum and Bradley Bill, both from C- uh, Seattle. St. Louis, and uh, they clearly have a, a strong relationship, friendship, if you will. And he was saying how Bradley Beal is the most underappreciated, underrated player in the league because he plays in a small market. And, you know, I took exception to that because I've heard this time and time again how D.C. is a small market. And, you know, if you remember in the 2010, 2011 year, when LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami was this whole big notion of market size, market size and small markets can't compete. Um, 
that I'll, I've always kind of fought against that because at the time Miami and Cleveland are similar market sizes and people have always tried to use the, I shouldn't say always, but over the course of time in recent history, a lot of people have always um, or have tried to critique the NBA and saying that you need to be in a large market to succeed. Now, mind you, all of this was happening when a, the San Antonio Spurs were in the midst of five championship rings, six NBA Finals appearances. The Oklahoma City Thunder had Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook at, on the same roster at the same time. We, we literally had a work stoppage because owners were so upset that LeBron left Cleveland, medium-sized market, to go to Miami, medium-sized market, or top 15, I want to say top 20 market for sure. And... They actually implemented, um, I don't know, they implemented certain parameters that actually moving forward hurt true small market teams. I could bring back, look back to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City decided not to keep James Harden. We all know this story now. They let him go because of the, the hefty price tag. So in actuality, you're trying to, to limit the power, quote unquote, power of large market teams and what you actually ended up doing was hurting small markets. But that's neither here nor there, right? I've always took offense when I heard people say, man, you know, DC is a is a small market. It's not a large market. It's a top 10 market. I believe it's number eight, but definitely seven or eight top 10 market for sure. So then, you know, again, benign tweet. I'm not thinking much of it. I'm just like, yo, DC's not a top or not a small market. It's a top 10 market. And the reason why they struggle with uh, fan, uh, I guess, fan interest, if you will, is because this is, I'm paraphrasing now, but I definitely said number one was that they lost and they were so awful for generations. That was the main reason why. That was the first thing I attributed to the this interest when it comes to the Wizards on, on a large scale. Number one. And then number two, I said, the local media here in D.C., specifically when it pertain, as it pertains to sports on radio and on television, they do not have a certain level of knowledge of the Wizards or of NBA basketball, and they don't cover it as much. And Lord have mercy, y'all would have thought I said, I called y'all Bama's mother out of, out of her name. Bama's was coming at me left and right. It was like, Slim, what? You can't possibly blame the media for why the Wizards aren't as popular. And actually, yes, I can actually. <laughs> That's actually what I did. It's not solely the media's fault. Not solely the media's fault. Very rarely is there ever just one reason why something happens, right? I found that in life, there are multiple things playing at all the time. Multiple reasons for every single action. And more times than not, there are several culprits of any one kind of conclusion. Several different factors that play in whatever final conclusion you make. So, you know, I'm, I'm receiving all types of Replies, and it's cool because everybody was cool. Like I said, all the time on the show, man, I'll engage and I will respond with you if you're respectful. Because look, we don't have to agree. 
I always look at it in this regard. I'm not ever trying to change anyone's mind when I'm making a stance because I don't think that one person can ever change another person's mind in one time or in that one set standard time with just dialogue. I think most times for people, they have to live through something before they can have their kind of eureka moment. But I will engage and again, not trying to change anyone's mind, just trying to articulate my point better because maybe I didn't address it the, the correct way initially. Then, you know, a high profile person, uh, someone that I have much respect for, I'm not going to name drop because I don't know them and I don't want it to make it seem like it's clout chasing. But someone jumped in my mentions was like, oh man, you must not be from DC. It's not the media's fault at all. And, you know, no, that kind of stuck with me because I 100% believe that the media at large has a certain level of influence over people. Even when the negative, um, the media still possesses or now seemingly increasingly has a negative standing with the public at large, right? I've always still felt, and I think when you look at the world today now, not even just in sports, if you want to widen the focus, if you will, just how impressionable so many of us are and how the media definitely uses its power of influence, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, it happens all the time. And how things are covered 100% affects how people or the amount of importance people place on anything. You understand what I'm saying? Like if I market and I cover something over and over and over again, people will just naturally feel that this is important. And because it's important, they will pay more attention to it. Case in point, and I'll give you multiple examples, but there have been so many people, a former colleague of mine, Christy Renner-Scott, was one of the people that I know personally who have always championed women's basketball, right? And McManus, Spain, there have been multiple people, countless number of people who have presented, David Barry has presented a a simple argument. That is, if the WNBA specifically is covered the way the other quote-unquote major sports are covered, the casual sports fan will then just subconsciously think that the WNBA is more important, right? These aren't my words. This is, there've been studies on this at nauseum, okay? If you cover the WNBA the way you cover the NBA, right? Casual fans will not then start to dismiss what these women are doing. And in fact, they will, more casual fans will gravitate toward the WNBA because it's covered in a certain manner, right? Look at the way UConn's women basketball is covered. ESPN will lead, will tease multiple times. Have deep teases have larger kind of uh, character pieces on the women, even the head coach Gina Oriema. Like, if you're not a huge college basketball fan, you still are aware of the dominance and the significance of UConn's women's basketball because it's covered so. UConn has been covered far, and the ratings bear that out. UConn's women's basketball is covered 
more prominently than the WNBA. And because of that, UConn's women's basketball generates higher ratings consist more consistently than their WNBA counterparts. It's not that UConn's women's basketball is a better version of basketball. It's not. And it's one of the things the critics of ESPN and other larger media outlets have when it comes to women's basketball is that they don't spend the right amount of time and the attention covering these amazing people. In this kind of back and forth, I, I, I gave specific personal examples of this, right? I remember when the Mystics won their championship, or not even when they won it, but when they were on the route to winning it. Uh, a former colleague of mine, Mike Wise, we were going, we, I remember having meetings with my executive producer, the show producer, or not the show, I was the show producer, but the, the nightly kind of overproduced, like per person who produced the nightly shows. And I was saying, yo, this is a big deal. We need to start covering them a little bit more in our news. No. Let me just quickly, as easy, it's just like that, like the easiest decision for them. No, we're not doing that. No. No one cares. Boom. No. Fast forward a few months and Nationals coverage is dominating every single night. I mean, news shows are extending. You have an hour-long pregame show, a post-game show. I remember when the Nationals won Game 7, I produced, I boofed, a, I think it was two hours championship celebration parade, okay? Every single news, whether it was four, five, nine, seven, whatever the case may be, everybody is trying to, to get in on that Nationals kind of love because casual fans, not diehards, but casual fans, understood yo this is kind of important whether you knew anything about the team about the world series major league baseball you just were like yo this is important i want to know about this i want to be a part of this kind of civic excitement that's going on i want to know so every newscast is how much more nationals coverage can you get or how much can we add to this this news broadcast and again i'm not even saying that we should cover the wnb i'm not saying we should cover any sport the way we cover World Series, Super Bowl, whatever the case may be. But I'm trying to illustrate that there is an impact, not on diehard fans, but on casual fans. People who couldn't tell you, name you three Nationals players were all of a sudden trying to consume as much national coverage as they could. Why? Because we were presenting it as a major story. Because it was. Again, civic pride is huge. But you have to ask yourself, why is it that in one major sports league, we don't talk about it, you have to fight for coverage. In the other one, management wants you to stuff your show with as much as national coverage as you can. Because how things are covered matters. People consistently kept on telling me, oh man, the Wizards, they don't win. No one wants to care. No one cares about a loser. No one cares about a losing team. Who wants to see losing teams? No one wants to talk about losing teams. I would first direct your attention to the Washington football franchise here <laughs> because no matter the season, everybody, every show host seemingly wants to talk about the skins here. They haven't won shit either. In fact, for the last 25 years, I will, I think it's a pretty fair debate. Who's been the more successful franchise between the Wizards of the, or the Burgundy and Gold? But let's remove that. Y'all know I'm a Knicks fan. Now, I'm not from New York, but I am a Knicks fan who grew up in the 90s. So if you want 
before like this 24-7 sports kind of landscape just bombarded, right? If I wanted to find out about the Knicks, I would have to go online and read the, the papers in, in New York. And even to this day, I always keep an eye on what's going on in New York because those beat writers are more connected to the team than national pundits, obviously. But I will always say, like, yo, if the if the argument is people don't care about losing organizations, why are the Knicks still among the most popular teams in the entire NBA? They haven't... The New York Knicks, since the year 2000, have won one... I'm sorry, since the year 2001 season. They have won one postseason series. I will repeat myself. Since the 2001 NBA playoffs, the New York Knicks have won one playoff series. One. The Wizards have won more than that in one year. I'm sorry, no, they haven't. The Wizards have won at least one playoff series multiple times in the last four seasons, four or five seasons. So it can't just be, oh, well, you know, the Wizards lose. That's why they don't get covered. That's why they're not popular. Nah, that ain't it. I've seen it. I've lived it. I've experienced it. So then the response then becomes, oh, well, it's different. You know, it's New York. New York fans love the NBA more. It's New York. Boom, 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 boom. It's New York. It's different than D.C. Okay. Let's look at the Nets then. The Nets, over the same period of time, 2001, they've been to two NBA Finals. They've won multiple more playoff series, have been far and away the better organization than the Knicks. The the Nets organization has had a rub from Jay-Z, who was wearing Brooklyn stuff all for, for years, pretty much, to get the attention of one of the most popular artists, musicians in our country. And now, currently, the Nets organization has two of the most popular players in the entire NBA. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Kevin Durant is one of the best players of all time. So, if it's about winning and because the New York market loves basketball, you would say, okay, well, then the Nets would have to be covered more than the Knicks, right? I mean, that's that's basically what you've been telling me. That winning equates to attention and popularity and that New York basketball means more to the people in New York. But then when you look at the facts, you realize, okay, well, no. Despite the fact that the Nets are way more successful, have been much more, um, have been ran far more competently, They have the more popular players. They have the best players. They've been to the finals multiple times. They still aren't covered the way the Knicks are. So no matter how lazy of an argument that you want to give us, something ain't adding up. Now, again, the Wizards' lack of popularity absolutely has to do with their awful run from the 80s through the 2000s. They they just were just a pitiful pathetic organization with little blips of positivity throughout the way but then ruined by poor management i'm not trying to ignore that they are culpable in their own kind of malaise why they're not as popular here in the dc area but if you listen to the radio and realize how little they are covered 
when you watch television and realize that there's only one network really devoted to sports here, like consistent sports, and they're partially run by the Wizards. So the people who actually know about basketball, NBA basketball, who works there, my own employer, they're kind of handcuffed to freely talk about the NBA and that team in a way that will garner respect to the masses because one of your bosses is part is part, part owner of the net news network. You didn't realize that the environment, the ecosystem for intelligent NBA talk is next to nothing. The hosts who who talk about radio, who talk on sports radio here in the DC area, how many of them know NBA basketball? How many of them can intelligently talk about the NBA? Truly. Not college basketball. There's a lot of people who can talk about college basketball on the radio. But the NBA and the college game are two completely different entities. They're almost different sports, honestly. And then you realize that, yo, the people who really, like, if you talk about something enough, you'll get enough casual fans to kind of be like, okay, maybe I should check this out. You ever hear about a movie that you may not have been interested in or you may not even know much about but enough people start talking about it you're like okay maybe i need to go check this movie out same rules apply with television shows same rules apply with different musicians comedians word of mouth it spreads this past weekend nelly and Ludacris had a versus battle right now Nelly and shout out to them. No disrespect to those brothers, right? Shout out to them both. Nelly and Ludacris on a versus battle isn't the same that Timbaland and Swiss Beats is. But Nelly versus Ludacris generated far more eyeballs on Instagram and third party whatever sites that people or apps that people would use to watch on Saturday night. Because enough word of mouth, enough people started talking about it because there was enough, people started talking about it enough that more people were like, oh, let me check this out. Okay, let me look at this. Let me see. Let me see what this versus thing is. And that's the same mentality when it comes to anything, any form of entertainment. If you talk about something enough, and if you place a certain level of importance on it, then people will gradually start to tune in. And then whether they like it or not, that's when you can make your decision. But make, make no mistake. When I was working at NBC Sports Washington, the Wizards were generating higher ratings than the Caps and the Nationals. So when, when the people come out and say, oh man, people just don't care about the Wizards, nah, that ain't it. I mean, relatively speaking, unless you're going to make the case that they don't care, that they didn't care about the, the Capitals or the Nationals as well. Now, the obviously the Caps and the Nats, as well as the Mystics, they've been able to punch in championship tickets. And that does help in terms of building lasting interest, building a legacy, right? The more success you have, the more pro, the more consistent success you have, the more kind of diehard fans will be bred. But that's not what we're talking about. So I definitely feel that the media at large, locally, they do have some factor into how the Wizards are are talked about. Because if you just completely, basically ignore them, well then yeah, people aren't going, casual fans, not diehards, but casual fans will then start thinking that they are irrelevant. But the Wizards are more relevant than the Knicks. 
They've won more recently than the Knicks. Yet look at how much the Knicks are talked about. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they are that popular. You feel me? But I want to hear from you guys. Am I wrong? Maybe the media has no impact at all. Maybe I'm just reading everything wrong and that the power of influence just does not exist anymore. I want to hear from you. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet the show at quarterly show. Again, we spell quarterly here. Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E. I want to hear your thoughts, man. Get engaged. Interact with the show. It makes the show that much better. All right, you all have heard the horn, which means it is halftime. This week, we've done a lot of basketball talk in the first two quarters. And now, it's time to turn our attention to the gridiron. Slim, I swear, every time I'm ready to kind of shoot the NFL some bail, every time I think that the NFL has... I wouldn't even say I've changed their tune, but just haven't decided to be consistent assholes on a large scale. Whenever I feel like the NFL is ready to just chill the fuck out, they do some shit like this. Have you guys seen? I'm sure you have. Where the NFL, they are, um, at least they're discussing rule changes to kind of increase minority hires. And the rule that they're uh, proposing now is that teams will have higher draft picks starting in the third round i believe if they have minority coaches or minor minority coaches or minority um members of in the front offices and you know it's very is it's very rare where people on different sides complete opposite sides of certain social issues can agree that a rule is so fucking stupid like you have People like myself, sensible people, I like to think. Like, yo, you're basically bribing teams, okay, to hire, to do the right thing, to hire people who would be deserving of a job. You're Because you can't look at the way the NFL is run, a league that's pretty much 70% workforce, black people. And then as you move up, those faces... They're good enough to play for you, but they're not good enough to coach specifically in, on offense or on a head coaching level. And they're definitely not good enough to run your football operations. Something just don't smell right with that, right? So sensible people like myself are like, yo, that's crazy. And then people on the opposite end of the spectrum, people who feel like, yo, there's nothing wrong with this. This is reverse racism, whatever that shit means. They also thought it was stupid. I don't know how the NFL can find themselves in this position so often where it is clear to anyone that this shit doesn't make sense. But as we've all kind of heard recently, like it's not enough to just criticize an idea. You have to implement, like, what would you change? If I don't like the Rooney rule, what would I do to make it better? If I don't like this proposal that the NFL is, um, at least talking about in terms of hiring more minorities, what the fuck would I install? What what would I implement instead? And I think I have a pretty good idea. Instead of raising a team's draft pick for hiring minorities, you get to address how the team drafts based upon how many minorities are in their coaching ranks and in their front offices. Hear me out. Pittsburgh Steelers, they have a black head coach. 
So you are allowed to draft black players. The Miami Dolphins has a black head coach and a minority um, front office with minority ownerships. So you would be able to draft multiple minorities in the draft. But if you don't have a head coach with a minority background and you don't have anyone in your front office with a minority background or ownership, then here's the deal. You won't be able to draft minorities. Watch how quick that shit will change. And if you're having a hard time trying to visualize how that would look, well, we here at the Quarterly Report are here for you. Take a listen. Becky Lynn, can you believe this shit? What's wrong, dear? The goddamn PC police are trying to rig the NFL. Shit. Trying to force our teams to hire some charity cases for coaching jobs and whatnot. Yes, the, um, Rooney Rule, right? I mean, that was garbage, too. But now, they're kicking it up a notch, saying we won't be able to draft coloreds if we don't have minorities in coaching or front office positions. <laughs> what the fuck? The black population is 13% around the same percentage of black coaches. Well, dear... Aren't the majority of players in the league black? That kind of proves their point, right? Oh, shit. You don't understand, Becky Lynn. Bless your heart. Never mind. Actually, this will backfire on their asses. I can't wait to see more of our boys get a shot. Hell, we need more Jason Seahorns and Mike Allstots. Several years later. Motherfucker! What's wrong, dear? You know good and goddamn well what's wrong, Becky Lynn. We just drafted another linebacker from BYU. He ran a damn 6-140 to go with our other linebackers from Iowa and Rhode Island State. I mean, damned if we aren't the slowest defensive midfield in the league. Well, isn't that what you wanted? No, Becky Lynn, I want to win. The fucking Steelers and Chargers and Skins keep drafting all of the best players every year. No wonder they've won the last 12 Super Bowls. So what do you think should happen? Well, you know, it isn't the 60s anymore. And you know, we need some new thinking. Fresh blood. More inclusion. You know, I think we need Jamal Williams as our new GM. What? No, Becky Lynn, don't give me more of that shit. We've got to evolve with the times. These gentlemen deserve a fair shot. Mm hmm And it's been about damn time the NFL gives it to well, them. I am glad to hear you say that. This is what makes America so great. It's the land of opportunity. Speaking of opportunity, I'm thinking about inviting over our new neighbors, the Johnsons, over for dinner. Have you lost your ever-loving mind? They will not step foot in our house. Do we look like some fucking hippies? <sighs> It's interesting, right, how one's perspective, one's viewpoint will change when it benefits them. Like when something actually happens to affect their happiness, man, people will be so willing to change their viewpoints and their positions, right? I said it earlier in the show, it's very rare, at least in my, you know, comings and goings, it's very rare to find someone who through words, through debate, through uh, discussion, will change their perspective. 
right? No matter how well crafted your argument it is, no matter how many facts you present, people are so entrenched specifically nowadays in whatever they feel, however they believe that words won't change them. They literally need to experience something to then shift their focus, to shift their perspective. And ultimately, I shouldn't say ultimately, more times than not, I found that when people stand to gain something, that's when they want to change. But that's, unfortunately, that's all fake, bro. Like, somebody will only change just because they'll win a few more games, and they ain't really changed that much, right? But, and, and let me make this perfectly clear, this is a joke, this is satire. Obviously, this is not a, a legitimate uh, pitch to change um, the Rooney Rule or to, you know, to advance diversity in the NFL. But I think you guys get the point, right? If you aren't willing to hire black people or brown people or any minority for that matter to coach or to run your organization, start stripping the ability to just employ them, to use them as labor. And watch how drastically that impacts, you know, the wins and losses in the league, right? Bama's... When 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 sports finally desegregated, right, it wasn't because, hey, man, this is just the right thing to do. Maybe that played a part in some people's minds, but whomever finally decided to do that, they started winning. And then once you realize, yo, this team is winning way more than we are, and they have all of this added, like they, they're choosing from a larger pool, then everybody else starts to change, right? Like, the NFL has basically told you that the people who run that league or the owners of that league and the people who make the decisions of that league, they are some shitty people. So you can't convince them to do something because it's right. They don't care. They care about their money and they care about wins and losses because wins and losses ultimately adds the revenue, adds to the revenue. So if you don't want to hire a coach or a minority general manager or someone in the front office, all right, stop making, stop implementing. Yo, you can't draft minority players in the first, second, third, fourth rounds. And see how quickly Bama's will be willing to change. Again, satire. It's not a legitimate suggestion because unfortunately, Bama's will be trying to take jobs away from brothers before they actually realize, yo, we need to change our, our ways. But I think the point remains. And hopefully you enjoyed that halftime this week. All right, guys, halftime adjustments have been made. We are ready to go for the second half, and I promise you this week we're starting off strong. Had some technical difficulties last week, but thankfully things all worked into place, and I'm super excited for you all to hear the interview I had with a friend of the program, someone I've known for years, one of the sharpest and smartest basketball minds that I know, ESPN's own Keely Divot. She's a friend of the program and someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a bit of time and one of the best basketball minds that I know. Keely Devin, thank you so much for joining me again on the Quarterly Report. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, thank you. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. So let's get right to it. Obviously, we all are living through a pandemic right now. And Obviously, the biggest issue is to make sure that we can lessen the amount of deaths and significant, you know, injuries um, due to COVID-19. Um, and that's obviously paramount. That is the biggest 
um, issue moving forward, not just as a nation, but as a planet, you know, as people. But if we were to refine the focus into the sports world, you know, last weekend, uh, the UFC, they rolled out their pay-per-view and it was a success. And now, you know, people, they're starting to get more and more of an itch to return to, again, normalcy, whatever that means, and including restarting sports, professional sports. There have been a lot of positive momentum surrounding this idea lately, whether we're talking about bubble cities or starting um, leagues back up with without fans, et cetera, et cetera. So my initial question to you, Keely, is regarding the NBA. Do you think, or how likely is it, for you at least, that the NBA does have a conclusion to this season, including a postseason? And secondly, should they start or restart this season? So I think that the first an- the first answer is going to be a 50-50, which I think is a dramatic improvement from what we right. thought, right? right? So I think... I'm going to give it a 50-50 that it is that they resume, but I think that there is probably a roadmap to doing that. Um, from Silver's Adam Silver's latest call um, with players on the phone, basically he said they're looking at a single site so that players don't have to fly around. Right. It would be, I think, from reporting I've read, Las Vegas would still be the front runner there um, because they have all that existing infrastructure, and NBA players are used to. Um, are they're used to summer league there. And I think the main question becomes testing, because if you think about the way America has approached um, their coronavirus response with Mm -hmm. quarantining people for 14 days, if they could have been exposed, et cetera, et cetera, you can cut that part out if you have access, wide access to testing and just see who immediately has it and who doesn't. Um, within a few days of exposure. So it's not a situation where I think if one player were to get it, that entire teams would have to be quarantined for long periods of time. I think that if they have enough tests, um, you might be able to just isolate whoever is exposed. I also think that if they were to continue, um, Silver has said that they want to continue with seven-game playoff series. Right. which answers a few questions to me. It says that, okay, yes, it's aspirational and he's going to say the thing that they aspire to do the most, but it also tells me that they are not yet resigned to the fact that they're going to have to significantly abbreviate their playoffs. That's a great point. Um, so that gives, me, that gives me a little bit more hope on that front. And I would also say that based on the amount of testing um, – that we currently have in the United States versus the amount of testing that the NBA would have. Mm-hmm. I think there are going to be some people, some players who, of course there will be some players who say I'm, I'm financially set and I don't want to take this kind of risk, but I bet that there's a pitch that you could make to players that being in an isolated situation with just a few close family members and your team with constant access to testing and medical care is the safer bet than what you're in now. I think that you could probably make that case. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not a doctor. I don't know that that's that's true. But in terms of just access to continual care, who knows how well players are quarantining now? Who knows how well their contacts are being monitored? So I'm going to give it a 50-50. I'm going to also say that Silver's most recent 
signal to to players that they don't have to make a decision about whether the season is going to return, even in the first week of June, tells me that moving the start of next season back to uh, December is really on the table. I would I would say right now it's probably better than a 50-50. Right. Um, so to me, I think the NBA also has fewer players per team than most sports. So it put and then means a lot less equipment. So I think, you know, you might be able to, you might be able to create a bubble like atmosphere for the NBA to return before you could another sport. But the, on the flip side of that, because it's played indoors, it's probably going to be one of the last sports that has fans staff. Once again, everybody, I'm joined by a friend of the program, Keely Divin. Make sure you follow her on Twitter. She's at K-E-E-L-Y-D-I-V-E-N. That's Keely Divin. Uh, super dope follow. Talks about a lot of different things, but is a huge basketball head. So you're going to want to make sure you follow her as well. And we're going to continue our conversation about uh, an impending NBA season or conclusion to this NBA season. And I wanted to ask you this question. It's kind of an either or. Um, but who stands to lose more? Lose more if there is not a conclusion of this NBA season, including more specifically, crowning a new NBA champion. Who stands to, stands to lose more? A, LeBron James. And I say that because, you know, LeBron has outwardly told us he's not chasing anybody currently. He's chasing ghosts, right? And we're going to talk about MJ in a moment. But he's chasing the legacy of Michael Jordan. And for whatever reason, I was talking to my cousin about this not too long ago. Four championships means it, it just feels much more significant than three. I don't know why that is, right? But four is just the difference of one championship. But four just sounds far more significant than three, right? I totally agree. Totally agree on the four championships, yeah. So he has a, a phenomenal chance to win number four this year. So does he stand to lose more if there is not a champion crown or or the Milwaukee Bucks organization. And I say that because obviously Giannis, he he seemingly is the next guy up, right? The next superstar of this league. And throughout this entire season, it felt like the Milwaukee Bucks were not only the immovable object, but the, you know, the unstoppable force, right? They were dominating everything in sight. And the Bucks basically will be forfeiting one year of team control over Giannis. Basically meaning next year, that entire organization is going all in to win a championship and convince Giannis to resign. Because let's face it, no disrespect, Buck fans, but if Giannis leaves Milwaukee, that organization turns into a wasteland, right? So who stands to lose more if there is not a conclusion to this season? LeBron James or the Milwaukee Bucks organization? This is this is hard because LeBron James is already at the top. He's already um, he's already the king. So him having the difference between a third and a fourth championship for LeBron versus keeping Giannis for the Bucks, you would say definitely that the Bucks. Um, uh, you would definitely say that you know the Bucks have more to more to lose if you think they're not going to be able to keep Giannis. But I will also say it. There's a lot, when we think about people's legacies, which you've seen a lot in The Last Dance, there's a lot of emotional attachment there, right? So it's not just about how much you win, but it's about how you win and where you win and the circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. 
That's why LeBron's championship over the Warriors counts for more. It's like a championship and a half in a lot of people's ideas. If he were to win in a pandemic-shortened season, in the year that Kobe Bryant passed away to get his for the Lakers, I think you could arguably say that with that championship and a half in the Warriors, and this would count as a championship and a half, you – the thing is, my, it, the, I think when you look at the, at the best NBA players of all time, mm-hmm. I don't think LeBron is in position to overtake Jordan. I don't think he could. He doesn't have enough runway left. Mm-hmm. But he could firmly cement himself as the second best player of all time. And I think some people actually already have him there. I already have him there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think LeBron, because he has so – because there's not a lot, there's not a lot left there. Um, the Bucks always have time to convince. They have some time to convince Giannis, right. um, and their risk of losing him is not. I feel like the missing this season doesn't increase their risk of losing him as much as missing this season increases LeBron's risk of never winning again. Yeah, if that makes it's- sense. I have one more thing to 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 add on this and see what you think. Mm-hmm. In the NBA, because so many teams are mediocre for so long, right. and it's a star-driven league, I think what happens at the top and who are the very best matters significantly more. Even if you're Giannis and you win one or two titles in Milwaukee, and that's the difference for Milwaukee and you end up staying in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. in terms of NBA history – Will Giannis staying and playing his entire career in Milwaukee be as important as if LeBron were to win this season's championship? You know what? You're right because, you know, history is written by the winners. And this is a perfect segue for our next topic. But, um, you know, when the history books are written and we've seen this with The Last Dance, you know, no one remembers the details. And if you're a Bucks fan, yeah, if, if, Giannis leaves, that's going to be significant for you because your your team, your organization, their entire trajectory just changes completely. But ultimately, on a larger scale, you know, the Lakers mean more to the NBA than any other organization. And right now, LeBron still is the the biggest, the largest name in the NBA. And if he were to win championship number four for the Glamour organization in a year where Kobe Bryant passes away during a pandemic. I mean, those storylines right itself. Uh, I personally don't think LeBron can catch Jordan, but you know, a lot of people probably disagree with me on that one. So um, I do believe you're right that, you know, the storylines specifically as it pertains to the NBA, uh, they're written from the top. And at this point, there isn't anything or any player above LeBron currently. So, I do think if he were to win in L.A. this year, that would be a larger storyline, um, unless you live in Milwaukee. <laughs> Once again, guys, I'm joined by my folk, man, my good people. Keely Devin uh, works for ESPN. Make sure you follow her on Twitter. She's at Keely Devin, super dope follow, and one of the best NBA minds that I personally know. So, you know, we've, we've teased it thus far. Uh, the Last Dance has come and gone. Uh, 10 episodes in uh it was a it was an extremely entertaining piece you know i, I don't want to discredit uh 
that that team who put it together it was phenomenally produced someone who does documentaries and works on documentaries i definitely appreciate the hard work that they've put forth and i do think it was a, a really entertaining um five weeks or so but I want to ask you, what is your lasting impression? How do you view The Last Dance as a series? Kind of what are your lasting impressions um, from the 10-part documentary, if you will? So I have to say that Jordan is who I thought he was. Right. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, Sure. And I also would have to say that I've been immensely entertained in a way that I did not expect because this documentary, um, well, so you you know that it was supposed to be um, that it was supposed to be released right. over the summer, and large large portions of it were not done by the right. time they decided to roll it out. So this is a rushed version, mm-hmm. which is astonishing to me when you look at the production value. Sure. I think also you have Jordan's stamp all over it because he was the one that, it, from my understanding having not been involved in creating anything. Um, but from my understanding, he was the one who, who owned all the footage. So yeah. you have that. Um, I also think the thing that I love about it is that it has become such an event in this, in this space. I think one part of one thing I've been really proud of is working on um, content to help promote that documentary um, and the, and the coordination around it. And the fact that it's become such a community conversation. I just got off the phone with a friend of mine in Sweden and they're all watching it and the Swedish media is covering it uh, the way our media is uh, doing recaps and analysis and et cetera, et cetera. Um, my Mexican mother-in-law watches every episode and mm-hmm. we talk about it um, in as sort of a substitute for sports. So I think also one thing that's really interesting and I, I wonder if this sticks out to you is looking at the accessibility and political openness of today's NBA stars and just like the overwhelming family friendliness and marketability of those people. When you compare their personalities to Michael Jordan, it's quite an arresting thing. Like LeBron is making kids programming. Right. um, right. And Curry is giving tours of his children's, you know, uh, dollhouses. Yeah. So it's it's a very different, you can see the mentality, the difference in mentality, but I will tell you that the moments that Jordan is not who I expect him to be, the moments when they show him crying for the loss of his dad and tears in his eyes for people asking if he is mean, I don't like that. Yeah. It makes me, it's very unsettling. It's like, this is already a time. It's, it's yeah. very unsettling. And to see Michael Jordan, who I have always believed, to be a stone cold killer in every way, be affected by how teammates remember him and by the loss of his father is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this does not, this does not jive with, with all of the narrative that I've always come to believe about this man. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I honestly think that depending on where you started with Jordan um, impacts how you're receiving this, right? Because when I hear like to me, someone who did not like Michael Jordan growing up, uh, like ever, like never rooted for him, never sang the Gatorade commercial, seeing his vulnerability, seeing how he felt kind of hearing his teammates kind of criticize him, 
someone who lost my father at a young age, kind of seeing him deal with that and wrestle with that, that was touching to me. That's something that that's a, a Jordan that I've never seen. And because I didn't like the kind of the portrayal and the, the, the player uh, when I was growing up, that was kind of a, a connecting point, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Um, but overall, I am concerned about how this uh, series, if you will, will be kind of held as the high standard of the like the end all be all of Michael Jordan in the NBA. Um, you know, I personally think Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. But there isn't anything that I've seen through this 10-part series that makes me feel like, ah, see, that's that's why he's the best. You know what I'm saying? There, there hasn't been a kind of aha moment. Like, oh, shit, like, that's why. And I've, and I've seen so many people, partly because he's Michael Jordan, but also partly because it's happening where everyone is watching all at the same time because the world, to some degree, has stopped. It, it, I, I fear that this is going to kind of carry a certain level of, I don't know, undeserved weight when it comes to uh, building up the legacy, if you will, of Michael Jordan. And that does worry me. That this will be the, this will be the definitive record of his yeah. time with the Bulls. And I think, honestly, I think that's what it's positioned as. Just like OJ made in America... Right. is going to be um, positioned in that way. I I was very, very surprised that the gambling came up. And I was also very, very surprised that um, that analysts were just invited on to, to speculate over Jordan's gambling problem, um, which I think, you know, or quote-unquote problem, because I think there's a lot of argument to be made about whether it was really a problem. Um, so I think, you know, it's not something that one thing I, that, that I actually did find as a person watching this, that was not paying close attention at the time. Mm-hmm. I did not realize how much Jordan suffered over the course of his career. Yeah. I think there was it real suffering tight. there. Yeah. And, and also the way that media treated Jordan at the time, we would never have a conversation about LeBron or Steph Curry being like, oh, he could be related. He might have had, you know, a gambling issue. Does he have an addiction? And is that related to the murder of his father? Like, that's not, we would never, never, never um, have that kind of conversation. And that shocked me. You're 100% right in that, you know, no one with any type of credibility, anyone who's respected, would ever try to link, um, the death of a close family member to actions that may or may not be, you know, substantiated. Like that was nasty. That's 100% nasty. But, you know, because Jordan was so successful and he kind of ushered in the celebrity analyst, the celebrity sports writer, right? All of these guys now are handsomely paid. Media has kind of shifted in a, in, in a ways that could be nasty. So while, no one would try to link LeBron or Steph or Kevin Durant to the murder of their family. At least I hope that no one would do that anymore. You know, we're both, we both remember not that long ago, 
people were giving all types of just nasty rumors about LeBron James's mother and a teammate of his. Like, you know, that happened not that long ago. Just a few years ago, you know, there was a, a police report where, you know, someone spray painted a, a racist comment on LeBron James's home. And because they didn't show it, right, there were, you know, an extremely popular member of the media who exists in a nasty space saying that it didn't happen, right? So it's weird, the evolution of how, like, how our media kind of exists and, like, where and how they occupy and, and the spaces that they they kind of live in. Um, but I do think it's all an evolution due to Michael Jordan's success because it was Michael Jordan's success that allowed the superstar sports analyst to exist where you have these guys who write or talk about sports being on national television shows just to give their opinions where before him, usually typically they were just writers and papers. And now, you know, midday during, you know, weekdays, you can find countless numbers of sports writers giving their opinions, making, you know, half a million or more dollars annually. Yeah. I mean, I think also like, I think we learned Jordan Jordan was the first big superstar and like anybody that goes first, like the first child or any yeah. kind of guinea pig, yeah. everybody's learning about the way to treat these people. Um, and I do think also one thing that really stood out to me with Jordan was that there were a lot of people that would never have been stars, that would never have won anything, that would never have did more than a blip on in the course of the NBA's long arc um, who are quick to say, Oh, Jordan wasn't very kind. Right, and it's right. like, well, okay. Yeah. If you look at this, if you look at the actual, the burden that he carried in the amount that he suffered, I can see how that does feel like a slap in the face. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So that, that was, that was one thing. Cause I think, when you hear these things, oh, Jordan is, you know, maybe not a nice guy. You sort of take that as, oh, maybe that's, a, that's something that is Jordan's personality trait rather than Jordan has suffered a lot and he has put a lot on the line and he's making judgments to, um, for what he thinks is the greater good. If you give that more context, I think, yeah, it I think it helps you understand it. Yeah. Once again, guys, I'm joined by friend of the program, Keely Divin. From ESPN, make sure you follow her on Twitter. She's at Keely Divin. And, you know, before you started working with the Worldwide Leader, you and I were colleagues at what's now called NBC Sports Washington. And, you know, we kind of, um, our love for basketball is what, you know, made us friends. And, obviously, our, our you know, love for John Wall. We both were fans of John. And, you know, you ended up covering him longer than I did. Uh, but I've, you know, been completely honest about how much I enjoy and how much of a fan I am of John Wall's game. So I 100% hope, hope being the key word here, I hope he can re rebound and come back better than ever and, you know, resume his phenomenal play on the court. However, I'm not confident about that at all. And it's not because of his play or his demeanor or anything like that. It's just because of 
what I like to think of human anatomy, right? John Wall has missed at least half of the season for three consecutive seasons, all with injuries or surgeries to his lower extremities, including in the NBA, you know, the kiss of death, which is a torn Achilles. There is a lot of, I don't know, pressure, maybe not is maybe isn't the correct word, but there is a lot of expectations being thrusted upon the Wizards uh, next season. And that is in large part due to John Wall's return. How confident are you that John will restore or regain his former self and be able to lift the Wizards back into uh, not just playoff contention, but also, you know, their aspirations to reach the conference championship and beyond? So this is a very interesting question because I think that I'm going to answer this question similarly to the way that we talked about the NBA coming back or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I was more pessimistic before I started to believe that the NBA could resume its next season in December, right? So John is going, if, if they do resume, if they do begin their next season in December and end up pushing it back, the way a lot of people have wanted to do since even before this pandemic, that gives John a lot longer of a runway to be fully healed, et cetera, and also to get back into basketball conditioning right. because I think that's going to be really key. Um, so there's that. But I do think that John's age combined with his history of injury, especially uh, the Achilles injury, like, as you mentioned, um, he's not a player who is a finesse and skill player. He's a player that relies on athleticism. Not that he doesn't, he couldn't develop those things, but I think it's that th- those are not already the strongest tools in his toolkit. So if you're a player who relies upon explosiveness and athleticism and you've had serious lower body injuries and culminating with an Achilles tear, then I, I think um, that I would say I'm more pessimistic than optimistic, but I'm swinging back toward a 50-50 because of all this extra runway that he's going to have. Um, I think that also we have to take a look at, you know, John's history in terms of, um, in terms of reported partying and, and, and things like that, that as he's become a father and has had to deal with, you know, some really tough things like losing his mother to cancer, et cetera. Um, and he has another son on the way. Um, I think that John might be at a different stage of maturity that can really, really help his game and help him stay healthy. Again, I hope John is able to to come back and silence any and all doubts um, because, again, I am a huge fan of his. But if you just strip it down layer by layer, like, let's just forget. Let's just focus on the fact that, like I said, he's missed three years missing at least at least half of the season right you look at someone like Derrick Rose another player who was explosive a point guard with lightning quickness and you know just electricity whether it's athleticism or finishing the whole nine it took Derrick Rose so long to finally get to where he is now where he has kind of a nice pocket of where his game kind of exists and though Derrick Rose had so many surgeries and surgeries after one another on his legs he never had the achilles and achilles that's the thing that worries me the most you know there's a long list of players who just have never regained their 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 pre-achilles injury selves right and then 
that's on top of the fact that he's missed three years in a row. If you stop doing something for three years, it's going to take you a long time to ever regain that that ability that you had if you ever do get it. And then on top of that, his age. You know, like this isn't what this isn't usually where guys who who build their game off athleticism. This is typically where they start to decline. And John is now going to be asked, I fear he's going to be asked to not just not decline, but then to regain himself or even be better than he once was. And man, that's just a lot to ask for any I also remember when he was in games, when he was playing and they actually the actual amount of time that Scott Brooks would play him him and Beal, John was handling the ball almost more than any other player in the NBA. So, like, they rely on him so heavily in terms of just minutes and to direct an offense. I mean, if this were a deep team, it would be a different story. But it's not. Yeah. I mean, couldn't have said it better myself. But I'm sure I I speak for you when I say we're both pulling for John. Like, we want John to succeed and to get his flowers, man. And I hope for not only the Wizards' sake, but for him that he can come back better than ever and then, you know, pull this team back in the right direction. So, you know, here's hoping that John, um, like I said earlier, silence all, any and all doubts. Once again, guys, I've been joined by a friend of the program, someone that I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a bit of time, Keely Divin from ESPN. Make sure you guys follow her on Twitter. She's at Keely, K-E-E-L-Y, Divin, D-I-V-E-N, truly one of the best uh, basketball minds that I know. And uh, Keely, thank you so much for spending some time out of your busy schedule and uh, chatting with me on the quarterly report. Thank you so much for having me. We need to we need to do these more often, and we need to talk about all the Wizards gossip, whatever it is that's out there. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right, guys, three quarters are now in the books, which means it's only one quarter left before we call it a show. And the name of this episode was called Ewing Theory. So you can take a wild guess where we're going to end this show. It's our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. I love Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing is one of my three favorite basketball players of all time. And as a Knicks fan, he has brought more joy to me in my 37 years on this planet than anyone who's ever lived or who's ever played during my life, I should say. So much of my childhood is wrapped around the moments that were made by Ewing. Two trips to the NBA Finals, even though one of them happened when he was hurt. Countless numbers of years as a legit NBA championship contender. Multiple, I mean, pencil us into the playoffs. There was a stretch before, you know, the the 95 season where you could pencil us into at least the conference championships, bro. I remember the first year I shouldn't say the first year, but one of the early years when we lost in the second round and I was just like, what? Can you imagine being like, now it was crazy as a Nick fan. You know what I'm saying? Like it's such a foreign idea. I remember I guess it wasn't 95. Maybe it was 95 because we went to the finals in 94. The 93 and 92, we remember what happened. So maybe it was 95, the first year we lost in the second round for a stretch. And I was so disgusted. It was like the second round, mind you, the Knicks have made made it to the second round once 
one time since the year 2000. Like, that's insane. But that's the reality of being a Knicks fan in 2020. I'm saying all of this to say, bro, I have nothing but love and respect for Patrick Ewing. Unfortunately for him, he ran into Michael Jordan. And then Akeem Olajuwon. And then Reggie Miller. And et cetera, et cetera. And that is where the focus of this quarter and how we will end this show. I've said it multiple times, people who know me personally, they probably look at me often. In fact, I know they do. We've had these conversations with some of my favorite, closest colleagues slash friends. Patrick Ewing is a Hall of Famer. I mean, literally, he is a Hall of Famer. He's one of the best players of his era. But make no mistake, Patrick Ewing, if every single NBA player were lined up, imagine if, you know, they're trying to go into an establishment. Let's call it the greatest. Like, that's the club that they're trying to get into. All the players are lined up. And I like entering this, this kind of hypothetical establishment. Patrick Ewing is either A, one of the last people to make it in to the club, or B, the velvet rope is placed right in front of him just as he's about to enter. When we talk about the greatest, I'm talking about the elite of the elite, the best of the best. Pat ain't that, man. And that one time it did pain me to say this, but it's it's just so crystal clear. And as a Nick fan, someone who loves Patrick Ewing, first jersey ever, first poster ever, first basketball card ever, were all Ewing, was always Ewing. You understand? I was a little little bummy kid, and I was always taking, you know, because at that time I was pretty tall for, you know, a youngster. I'm always taking these kind of little bummy fadeaways like Pat did on the baseline. Man, I mean, dog. Pat was, when it came to sports, man, Pat was everything to me. But now as an adult, like, yo, we can be honest. The 90s era of the NBA is the most popular era of the NBA. I mean, by every way, every way you can define it. And we talked about this earlier. If you watch the documentary, that is not even largely... Damn near almost all way, all responsible by Michael Jordan. And everybody else just kind of grabbed a piece to that man's cape and rose with him because of him. The league even. I mean, David Stern said it on episode 10. Like, man, in 1991, the NBA was aired on 80 different in 80 different countries. Now it's over 200 plus. And you'd be a fool. If you think it was because of anything other than or more anything that's more important than Michael Jeffrey Jordan, it's just not, it just ain't it. It's him, MJ. And man, you know, I, I've been wrestling with this and how I wanted to verbal, how I wanted to articulate this because even as a youngster, man, I, and I didn't know how to define it. I had an issue with how cool, how like, yo, how fly Mike was with Pat, how how close they were. I'm thinking, because I never was able to kind of 
understand that I was never an elite competitor. You know what I'm saying? Like, the only people who I actually had a passion to, like, yo, I want to beat this dude, whether it was when I was boxing, whether it was anything. Like, you know, I want to win versus my sister when we play little house games or I want to win versus my friend if, if I'm racing. But, like, I'm talking about legit, like, yo, I need to beat this dude. The only way I felt like that is if I literally did not like you. That's how, and again, I understand that people's motivations are different. But, yo, when you watch The Last Dance and you see how cool and how fly Pat was with Mike, ask yourself now in 2020, bro, if we were like that now, we would crush them. Pat and Barkley were two quote-unquote rivals at the time of Michael Jordan, and they weren't rivals in any legit sense of the word. You know, Carl Malone and Reggie Miller were probably more rivals to those two than Mike was. Lonzo Mourning also. Like, but but the, the it was painted as, you know, early to mid-90s, Ewing and Barkley, they were rivals with Michael Jordan. They went in that man's movie. And in that movie, they lost their powers to like, you know, alien creatures. And I get it. It's a silly children's family movie. It's not a big deal. But the idea that Michael Jordan was able to beat all of them by himself tells you something. Like, we have a bunch of dudes now who don't want to be in the Space Jam movie off the strength because they know how it would look and how we would crush them. Oh, my goodness. He wants to be in LeBron's movie. Like, Anthony Davis, he's cool now, right? Because he's a teammate. But imagine what we would do if Kevin Durant was in Space Jam. We would light his ass up. Oh, my God. You want to be in LeBron's movie? That's the dumb shit we do now, right? And I'm saying it's dumb, but in, in a vacuum, yo, Pat being in a movie with his homeboy, that's fine. But then every time you watch... Their their relationship. Mike is just sunning him. Sunning him. Let me remind you. Pat never beat Mike in a game that mattered. National championship game? Nope. Conference championships? Nope. Conference semifinals? Nope. Mike busted his ass at every turn. Now, I, again, I'm shooting Pat Bell. The Bulls were a better team than the Knicks. One thing that I hope everybody, whether you lived through it, whether you didn't, whether you lived through it and just didn't pay attention, like that era has been romanticized and so many people look at, oh man, look how how the how hard of a, a road Mike had to get to to win those championships. Man, he had a hard road in the in the ninth in the eighties. You had to go through the, the Celtics and then the Pistons and obviously when he got to the finals, that Laker team was different. But look, I'm not going to diminish that. He had to get through the Lakers. He had to get through Magic Johnson too. But when you look at the East, the Knicks, the Pacers, the Heat, the Hornets, the the the, the Hawks. Come on, brother. Nah, once you got through the Pistons, that shit was light. But it wasn't light for Pat. I mean, he had to fight, scratch, and claw just to lose to Mike. And that's what I'm talking about, man. It's different, bro. 
I, I'm not trying to come across like I'm hating on Package Slim. Again, he's one of my favorite players ever. But he was not a, a truly historic, great, elite player. He just wasn't. He was really, really good. But look at his career. How many MVPs did Pat win? None. How many defensive players of the year did Pat win? None. How many times was he first team all NBA? Once. First team defense? None. None. Think about it. Pat has it. I'm, I'm sorry. Robinson has an MVP. Lajuan has an MVP. Malone has an MVP. Barkley has an MVP. Jordan, obviously. Pippen, more times on first team all. I mean, just go through the list. And then you come to Pat. And you're like, bro. Why are you so cool? Why are you so flower, buddy? How many times in this in this documentary did you see Pat get his ass dunked on? And then just be cool with it. Hell, Charles Oakley, I remember years later, not just what he recently said. I'm talking about years ago when they were just a few years removed from being teammates. He would be like, yo, the reason why the Knicks could never beat the Bulls, it was Pat was just too friendly with Mike. And I know what people will say, oh, Oakley is, is Mike's man. Like, they real, real cool. I guarantee you Mike never tried that fuck shit with, with Oak. Bro, you know he didn't. He never did that little slide shit. You want to know why? Because Oak ain't about that shit, bro. Now, Oak is different. Patrick Ewing was the number, the first lottery number one pick ever. People legit still to this day think the Knicks rigged the lottery to draft Patrick Ewing. Slim, if I rigged the lottery, I ain't rigging that shit for a quarter of a million dollars. I want the whole jackpot. Oakley went to Virginia Union. Pat went to Georgetown. Three national championship games, one national championship. Oakley's game was a man who worked his ass off. And I'm not saying Pat didn't work his ass off. He clearly did. He's just more talented than Oak. Oak squeezed every bit of juice out of that fruit. Every last drop. I can't say that Pat did. You know what I'm saying? And as a fan, you watch like all of this, like it, before we even got to the last dance, but specific, especially now that we have seen it all, man, you watching like kind of the focus. And you know, I, I'm not one who always gets caught up in the quote unquote, will he will this team. Uh, I don't believe that. I think, yo, sometimes you have a, a certain level of determination and people follow that. But ultimately, the best teams win. The best players in basketball, they're going to win. And Michael Jordan was the best player and he also had the best team. Pat wasn't going to beat that. And I'm not even going to hold anything against Pat in terms of losing the mic. That relationship bothered me, but I'm not going to hold that against him in terms of losing to the Bulls. Slim, the Bulls beat everybody. Michael Jordan has an error of guys who did not get rings. I shouldn't say. That's kind of what the argument is. You think about it. A lot of those guys ended up getting rings. But the 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 Oak or not, the Barclays, the Ewings, the Stocktons, the Malones, like those guys, the greats of that era, they didn't win. Robinson did. Elijah did. Shaq did, you know, but you get what I'm saying. So I'm not going to hold losing to Mike against Pat, though I wish he could have separated. They could have kind of pulled apart, distanced himself, his friendship with Mike, somebody who was 
building a legacy off of sunning your ass. I wish he could have seen that shit. Jeff Van Gunny peeped it. Pat Riley peeped it. Charles Oakley peeped it. Pat couldn't. But I'm not, again, losing the mic, bong, whatever. It happens. Why is Rick Smith busting your ass in the playoffs? I'm going to kind of pivot to a different argument now, and I want to make sure I say this properly because a lot of players during this little stretch, this example of which I'm going to try to illustrate, they're going to catch strays, and I don't mean it to be an insult. So I'm not insulting Rick Smith. I promise you I'm not. But I'm using him as an example. Rick Smith was a one-time All-Star. Really good player. Really good player. But he's not, he ain't the, the, nah. You know, the Duncan Dutchman, bless him, bless his soul, bro. Nah. That's, if you were great, you're not supposed to struggle with Rick Smith. Go look at their head-to-head log in a postseason. Rick Smith used to bust Patrick Ewan's ass, dog, year in, year out, when the Knicks and the Pacers played each other. If you great, you're not supposed to struggle with Rick Smith. Look, again, here comes another stray that is not meant to be one. Rick Smith is considered, think of him as a modern-day DeMar DeRozan. And yes, I understand different positions. The game is different, right? They're not, centers aren't what they used to be. So, and, and if you were going to try to relate the two, compare the two, I'm saying not necessarily in positions and definitely not with skill because, look, DeMar DeRozan is a better basketball player than Rick Smith. But you get the point. Good players. Really good players, even. DeMar is really, really good player. But the great players, they don't struggle with DeMar DeRozan's. They don't. In fact, look at kind of what has happened with LeBron. People, many instances, are trying to diminish what LeBron did in the Eastern Conference because he's running up against DeMar DeRozan every year. So it then becomes, oh, man, who, who did he play in the East? He just beat DeMar DeRozan a bunch of times. But that's the point. When you're playing players that type of, of that caliber and you are considered great, you don't struggle with DeMar DeRozan. Bradley Beal, who's not even, you know, a really good player of his era, he, the biggest Wizard fan will tell you, he's not an all-time great, and he's not yet. Maybe he turns himself into becoming one, but he's not an all-time great. Bradley Bill bust uh, DeMar DeRozan's ass in the postseason. So, yeah, if you if you consider one of the greatest basketball players of all time, that's light work. But it was never light for Pat. It was never light for Pat. If he's so great, you should not struggle with DeMar DeRozan's. You should not struggle with Rick Smith's. You shouldn't. Let alone get your ass bust year in. I mean, it was a coin flip. I remember vividly watching those games like, okay, is Pat going to outplay Rick Smith this game? It was a legit coin flip, man. And again, no disrespect to Rick Smith, but if Patrick Ewing is as great as some people want him to out, try to prop him up to be, then fuck no. You feel me? You're not supposed to struggle with that type of guy. It's not supposed to happen. But it happened all too regularly. And as a Nick fan, bro, you sit here and it's like you have to wrestle with this because this guy who, without question, of that era was the best player who ever wore your jersey. But it wasn't good enough. And it always left you wondering, dog, how nice is he? You blowing layups. <laughs> the team is winning without you. Bro, 
I understand that Pat was way past his prime in 99. I get that. I truly do. Ask yourself, how many times, even when Elijah Wan was past his prime, how many times did the Rockets go to the finals without him? You think that the Miami Heat would have gone to the playoffs? I'm talking about before LeBron went there. They didn't have success once Zoe left until they had somebody who was better than him in Dwayne Wade. Tim Duncan, even when he was past his prime, you see what has happened to the Spurs once he left? They go into the finals, advancing their playoffs multiple years in a row. He goes, even with Kawhi there, bong, it's over. It's over for them. Yo, how in the world are the Knicks able to get to the finals without Pat? You understand? And don't talk to me about, oh, man, you know, it was the strike sorting season. The Knicks were the eighth seed that year. So they went through number one, number four, number two. They went through all of them. <laughs> the Pacers went to the finals the following year. That's what the Knicks beat in the conference championship. So, nah. How do you wrestle with that? You look back, man, and you, especially now looking back on when you see kind of what the last dance was. And it wasn't really about the last season. It was about that entire run through the Bulls, that entire decade almost. And you're looking and you're like, yo, even when Jordan was gone, Olajuwon busted his ass. Smith was busting his ass. When Shaq was in Orlando, Pat never defended Shaq because Shaq would bust his ass. It just kept on coming. It's like, why, why can't you be the best? Is that too much to ask? Is that unfair? Maybe. But when we're talking about the elites, the greatest of the greats, nah, that shouldn't be an unfair question. Why can't you be the best? I don't know, man. I love Pat to death. I love him to death. And it may not sound that way listening to this quarter, but this is honesty. Because so many people have romanticized about the 90s NBA, 90s era NBA. But bro, pull that, like, cut that shit out. They were greats, don't get me wrong. We can go down the list. And obviously, that list is headlined by number 23. Easy. But bro, if we are being honest... Bill Simmons has created the 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 the, the term Ewing theory, and what do you what? No matter what you feel about Bill Simmons, dog, it's real. <laughs> like, look at it. Look at that. Look at the the Knicks run without Pat in many different years, many different eras. Look at their record without him, and then compare him to any other quote unquote great player ever. Something sticks out. You know, let's be honest. And also, let's be honest about when people say, man, you know, the NBA, they're too soft. They're too friendly nowadays. Dog, let's be honest. I don't know many players who are in somebody else's movie right now. I don't know anybody who else would be just laughing at someone else's just shitting on you over and over again. And that's your man. I don't see it. Show it to me. I don't see it. But as a Knicks fan growing up, I saw it all too many times. Coming from one of my favorite players ever. 
And dog, it may be hard to stomach. It may be hard to hear. Specifically where I'm living at right now, the head coach of Georgetown basketball, one of the greatest player of Georgetown basketball history. Dog, it was hard to live through. I want to hear your guys' thoughts, man. I know a lot of people love Pat. I get it. And I love Pat too. But though, let's be honest. I don't think Pat's an all-time great. I think he's a really good player. And in the, the scheme of things, he was an absolute great basketball player. But when we're talking about the best of the best, the creme de la creme, the greatest of the greatest, dog, he ain't on that list. But I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on Patrick Ewing? What are your thoughts on the entire show? Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com or tweet at me, quarterly show. Again, we spell quarterly here, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. Also, we've made the transition to Anchor Podcast. So wherever you listen to podcasts, we're on Anchor, we're on Apple Pods, uh, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. Make sure you guys do the search for the quarterly report. Again, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E report. Download and subscribe. If you've ever, uh, over the past few weeks, if you've lost your downloads, you have to redo it. Thank you, and I appreciate you guys doing that, kind of making sure you keep it up to date with all the new content that's coming out. I want to also thank my guest this week, Keely Divin, and I want to thank each and every one of you all for rocking with me this week and every week right here on the quarterly report.